Good morning. My name is Craig. I'm one of the elders here at Cross Point. This morning we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 22, if you'll turn with, there with me. Psalm 22 is a lament psalm, <clears throat> and lament psalms often contain complaints to God or questions of why. For example, in Psalm 64:1, Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. And in Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, wilt thou forget me forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long will I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my <clears throat> heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? And then in Psalm 10, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? I can't remember for sure, but I think it was my dad who taught me never question God. After all, God is sovereign. He's all-knowing. He doesn't make any mistakes. And questioning him is like uh, calling into question his judgment or questioning his character. It's showing a lack of faith in God. Look at Isaiah 45.9. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you are doing? Questioning God is like questioning, uh, the clay questioning the potter. And then there was Job, who in the midst of all his troubles was complaining about his plight. And then God shows up and says, hey, little man, where were you? when I laid the foundations of the earth. Hey, why don't you counsel me? So I always felt pretty, pretty good about my uh, high view of God and my trust in his sovereign nature. But here's the thing. Of the 150 psalms, 67 of them are at least in part lament psalms. So almost half of these God-inspired psalms contain complaints to God. And that kind of collides with my never-question-God stand. So here's what I've learned. God wants us to trust Him. He wants us to revere Him. But He knows our weaknesses. He's a compassionate God. He's a relational God. And He wants us to be open and honest with Him. Not only is this a lament psalm, it's a messianic psalm. It's a foreshadowing of the suffering Messiah. So we have two things going on here at the same time. We have David using poetic language to uh, pour out his heart before God, and God is using divine inspiration to uh, look at the future suffering of his son on the cross. So first we're going to look at this purely from David's point of view, and then we're going to back up and look at the uh, foreshadowing of the cross. So you're going to get two messages this morning for the price of one. <clears throat> Um, I know some of you are thinking, I'm good with one. I'm good with one. Uh, verse 1, Psalm chapter 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. I think we've all been through these times in our life of intense struggle and pain and hardship whether it be financial problems or relational problems, trouble with family and friends, health problems, times where it seems like life is out of control and too much to handle. And you come to the Lord over and over again asking for help, and it seems like 
either God isn't listening or he doesn't care. Speaking about God caring, I, I've got to share a story with you. Uh, last weekend, uh, we had the grandkids over. And uh, in the middle of the night, Hunter, my oldest grandchild, woke up uh, throwing up. He threw up several times. It was just a miserable time for him. But when morning came, he woke up and he was just fine, hungry like nothing had never happened. And uh, my wife said to him, You know, Hunter, I prayed last night that God would make you feel all better. And he looked up at his grandma and said, And he said, Okay? <clears throat> I would love to have that uh, childlike innocence and sense of wonder back again. But back to David, this, this is where he has, is at this time in his life. He's at the point where he wants to know why. Why have you forsaken me, God? Why are you so far from saving me? And some of you may be there right now at a point where uh, you want to know why. When's this going to end? And, and here's what I'm learning. It's okay to be honest with God. He can handle it. Look at verse 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. David is showing balance here. Why, God, I don't understand. Yet you are holy. You are sovereign. In the midst of the why, he remembers God's faithfulness in the past. And that's usually not where we go when we're in that tough spot where everything's overwhelming. During those times, the pain and the fear seem so real, and it seems like there's no way out. But if we think about it, we'll realize that we've been through hard times before, and God has walked with us through those hard times and brought us to the other side. And that's what David is doing here. Verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. It seems like David's having a little relapse in his faith here. Uh, you've been faithful before, Lord, but I feel like a worm crawling around in the dirt. I am that low. All the people around me are questioning my relationship with you. You know, it's one thing to, to go through tough times. It's another thing altogether to have people question your motives, uh, to question your character. There's something particularly painful about mis being misunderstood, isn't there? You ever been in that time in your life where uh, you lay awake at night going over and over in your head what that person said to you, how you should have responded, how you'd like to respond? Verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. David is reminding God here, and I think himself, that God has always loved him, and as far as he could, back as he can remember, he has always loved God. So he says, God, you love me, come near to me. No one else but you can help me. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. 
They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax that is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare at me. They gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now at this point, it's hard not to uh, get sucked into the prophetic aspect of this psalm, but let's stay focused on David here. I don't know the specific situation David's in here dealing with, but it sounds bad really bad. He's using poetic language here, but, but let's look at his plight. He's surrounded by enemies. This could have been one of those times where King Saul sends out the armies to kill David, and he's surrounded uh, and trapped. He says his heart is like wax. What I'd like you to do with me is everybody close their eyes and, and just become conscious of your heart. Kind of feel it beating there in your chest. As you're feeling your heart, now feel it becoming like melted wax. You feel it kind of like sink down to the pit of your stomach. That's despair. There's that sinking, the melting of away of the spirit, I think, that David is talking about here. He says his strength is dried up like a potsherd. A potsherd is a, uh, uh, a shard of pottery. So he's saying, my strength feels like a piece of clay pot out in the sun, baking away and wasting away. He feels like he's going to die, he's wounded, and so emaciated that you can see his bones. Now at the beginning of this psalm, you thought David was just a whiner, didn't you? No, he's in a tough place. Verse 19, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword and my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So David cries out to the Lord for help here. And notice that all these sentences end in exclamation points. I'm sure you've prayed prayers like that. Lord, rescue me now before it's too late. These are prayers of desperation. And then notice the last half of verse 21. You have rescued me from the wild oxen. Again, he's recounting the prior faithfulness to the Lord. You've rescued me before, Lord. Do it again. So recapping David's struggle with the Lord here. God, why have you forsaken me? Why don't you answer? I've always trusted you. You've always been faithful. But God, they're saying horrible things about me. Okay, I know that you love me. Come close to me. God, things are bad. Look at what's happening in my life. Draw near. Deliver me. Save me like you have in the past. You see, the back and forth here of a struggling man. God, I feel like I'm going to die. I know that you love me, but it doesn't feel like it right now. During those times, we struggle with fear and trust, pain, and faith. And there's that natural back and forth that God is aware of. But here's what amazes me about David. 
this man after God's own heart before the Lord rescues him. Because between verse 21 and 22, it doesn't seem like there's any gap, like there's any place where the Lord answered his prayer. But the rest of this psalm, David gives praise to God. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. You all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard him when he cried. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Okay, let's be honest here. When you're at the bottom and you're crying out to God and it doesn't seem like God is showing up, it takes a lot of discipline to worship the Lord in those times, doesn't it? Maybe you're more spiritual than me and it just comes flowing out of you. But for me, in the middle of fear and depression and uh, feeling sorry for myself, maybe even a little mad at God for not showing up or seeming like he cares, the last thing I feel like doing is praising the Lord. But it's probably the best thing that we can do. For it gets our focus on God, right? It gives us our, our focus on who he really is and off of our situation. So that we can come to the point where we can say, no matter what happens to me, he is worthy of my praises, just by his character. So here's what we've learned so far. In the midst of trouble and hard times, number one, it's okay to be honest with God about your feelings. Now, I will admit, I still struggle with that one, asking God why. Um, Friday, I started losing my voice. Yesterday was even worse. Last night, uh, before I went to bed, I started getting a sore throat. And I hadn't asked God why yet. I figured, God, this is your church. I got to give the message tomorrow. I'm the messenger. You know what's going on. Then about 4 o'clock in the morning, I was uh, standing in the kitchen sink gargling salt water because it felt like I was swallowing razor blades. And I finally said, okay, God, why? Then I got up at, uh, no, I went to bed and I started remembering Psalm 22, of course, because I'm, it's it's in my mind. And I thought, well, even when it's not looking like the Lord's going to come through, I need to praise him. It's amazing how the Lord teaches us lessons along the way as we're trying to teach. Uh, I woke up at 6 o'clock this morning, still had the sore throat, and I thought, well, this is the way this is going to be, huh? 
But uh, God is faithful, and uh, by the time I started preaching the first service, uh, my sore throat was gone. So we need to remember God's faithfulness in the past. He will come through for us. We need to continue to cry out to, to him for help. And we do need to worship him in the midst of our suffering. That's what we can learn from David. Now let's go back and look at this from the perspective of the cross. Verse 1 on Psalm chapter 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you put your program in here or keep your finger in the Psalms and turn back to Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what was going on during these three hours of darkness? If you put another finger there in uh, Matthew and turn back to Isaiah 53, starting at verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Speaking of Jesus here. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And all our sin was laid on him. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. On the cross Jesus became sin. He took on the sin of all humanity. And Isaiah 53.10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if, it would, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. The scourging and the cross were carried out by the Romans, but they were planned by God. It was God the Father who punished his son. It says he, he was pleased to crush him and put him to grief because he was killing sin. He was taking away that thing that stood between us and God so that we could be reconciled to him. So back to Matthew 27. Darkness covered the earth for the three hours as Jesus hung there and bore the sins of the world. And for the first time in all eternity, God the Father and God the Son were separated. The night before, Jesus was in the garden praying, and he was asking the Father, if it's all possible, would you take this cup from me? And I don't think he was sweating drops of blood over the anxiety of the coming uh, pain that he was going to suffer the next day, although that had to be extremely stressful. I think he was freaking out over the fact that he was going to be separated from his father. For all eternity, he and the father were one. And now <clears throat> he's experienced this separation and loneliness and darkness and intense pain. 
And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 gives us a perspective from the cross, from Jesus' point of view, from his perspective. Back to verse 6 of Psalm 22. This is probably where you're going to give up flipping through the pages with me and just uh, read it up on the screen, but stick with me here. Verse 6. This is from Jesus' perspective, hanging on the cross. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And then back to Matthew twenty-seven thirty-nine. All those... Passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. You see, Psalm 22, Matthew 27, these are the same events written from two different perspectives. Matthew, we're looking at the cross. In Psalm 22, we're looking from the cross through Jesus' eyes. We're getting a look at the personal human suffering of Jesus. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Picture him looking down at the Roman soldiers who are crucifying him, the uh, scribes and Pharisees as they mock him. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. Here's a quote from uh, John MacArthur about the crucifixion. And so, Jesus Christ, already bleeding from the scourging and rapid loss of blood, was nailed and held to the cross by four great wounds through his hands and feet. As those square nails were driven through the quivering flesh, and there he was to hang on a piece of wood. The cross is lifted up and dropped in a socket. The thud and the jolt rips and tears the flesh as it hits the bottom. And there he is to hang, and he will die. He will die of hunger. He will die of thirst. He will die of exposure. He will die of suffocation of his organs. It's an ugly picture. It's an ugly picture of a crown of thorns crushed into his brow, blood running down mingled with the sweat and the grime and the flies and the gnats irritating him, and him pinned and unable to do anything about the torture of the annoyance and irritation. So there he hangs, dying from severe inflammation, hunger, thirst, swelling of the wounds, unbearable pain from torn tendons, 
agony from the horrible weight of his body hanging by those four wounds, suffocating by the rearrangement of his internal organs with a throbbing headache beyond belief and burning thirst. Again, let's look at back at verse 14. From Jesus' perspective, as that's happening to him, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. In Matthew 27, 35, when they had crucified, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. Here's what's astounding to me. David wrote this psalm over a thousand years before the time of Christ. Crucifixion as a means of death had not even been invented yet. And yet God used an event in David's life to write in amazing detail what would happen to his son a thousand years later on the cross. Our God is an awesome God. He loves us so much <clears throat> that even before he created man, he planned out the rescue operation of the cross. In my mind, that <clears throat> before God ever started creation, there had to have been a conversation in heaven between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And normally in heaven when God speaks, there's thunder and there's lightning, it's loud. But this time you would have had to get close to hear the Father saying, you know, if we start this whole creation process in order to uh, make man in our image, things are going to go south pretty quickly. Man is going to rebel. They're not going to look anything like what we created them to be. And the only way to fix it, the only way to reconcile them is, Jesus, you're going to have to take on flesh and take the punishment for their sins and die an awful death on the cross. And Jesus said, let's do it. <clears throat> now, as a father, there's no way I would do that from any of you guys to my son. I'm sorry. And as Jesus, Jesus would have had to look immediately into the future and see that day and what it would cost him. And if I was Jesus, and you can be glad that I'm not, <clears throat> I probably would have said, well, maybe we should just stop with the animals. Animals are kind of cool. <laughs> but they didn't. They went through with this. That's how much we are worth to God. That knowing beforehand, he would go to that great length to love us and to redeem us. Appropriately, this morning, we're going to be taking communion together. <clears throat> and I got to thinking, we have a lot of new people coming to church and new, new believers coming to church. Uh, maybe it would be good to talk about communion, what it is and why we do it, how we do it. So that's going to be three messages for the price of one today. You guys can take the next couple Sundays off, sleep in. Just kidding, Pastor Jeff's coming back next week. You don't want to miss that.
you'll turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. This is the last place we're going to land. You can take your fingers out of all the other places in the Bible. This is Paul speaking to uh, the Corinthians about communion. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, of the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. First off, communion is for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. This represents the new covenant between Christ and his church. With it, we, rem we remember and proclaim the Lord's death. Secondly, in verse 28, it says that we're to examine ourselves because whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner drinks judgment to himself. If you look at verse 30, it says that for this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. And when Paul talks about sleep in the New Testament, he's not talking about taking a nap. He's talking about being dead. So uh, communion is a, is a solemn thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's something to be taken seriously, and that's what Paul is talking to the Corinthians about. So what does it mean to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? It means treating it lightly rather than seriously. It means treating it as a religious ceremony and something, something that is personal between you and the Lord. It'd be something like sitting there messing with the cup while you're thinking about playing golf this afternoon. Treating it lightly when you're supposed to remembering the fact that Jesus Christ died for you and paid a terrible price. Or if you come with any unconfessed sin you're not willing to repent of. You're coming to the Lord's table unworthily. You know what kind of sin I'm talking about. I'm talking about that, that, that thing that uh, the Lord has spoken to you repeatedly about, but you're not willing to give it up. So you think about it. You come, you come and you take communion, and you're remembering the Lord's death and the fact that he died for the very thing that you're not willing to give up that you want to hold on to. And lastly, uh, when you think about it, we, uh, we take communion corporately as a body. We never take communion by ourselves. It's something that we do as the body of Christ. And thus, God is concerned about our relationship, not only with him, but about our relationship with each other. So if you're harboring any kind of bitterness to, toward another Christian, if, you're, uh, if there's something between you and another Christian that you need to deal with, you need to deal with that before you take communion. That's part of what Paul was talking to the Corinthians about. So here's what we do. If you're a follower of Christ here in a bit, I'm going to ask you to go, go to the back and pick up the bread and the cup. 
come back to your seat, and then we'll give you some time to examine yourself. That's what that extended period of time, uh, quiet time is, between uh, the time you get back to your seat and the time that we actually take communion together. It's a time for you to ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart and to see if there's anything in your life with you, with which you need to deal. If he brings up uh, something, confess it, repent of it. Uh, if he brings up a relationship that you need to make right with somebody else in the body, just set the cup and the bread down and don't take communion until you can make that right. Maybe it's your, if it's your spouse that you've offended, you can take that time to put your arm around them and sincerely apologize. You get it right right then. But after you've uh, made sure that everything is right between you and the Lord and you and other Christians, take the rest of that time to remember the sacrifice that the Lord made for you. And then afterwards, we will eat and drink together. Now, I tell you this not to make you afraid of taking communion. I'm, t I'm telling you this that uh, I'm just passing along Paul's warnings about communion. That it's something to be taken seriously because it was something serious that Jesus did for us. So with that in mind, I invite you to go back and pick up the bread and the cup and spend some quiet time before the Lord. And Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Isn't it interesting that we take this bread and we crush it between our teeth? He was crushed for our iniquities. In taking communion, there's this personal element in it in which we remember that it was our sins that caused him the pain. Let's eat the bread together in remembrance of him. In the same way he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Know this, that your, though your sin caused his death, his blood cleanses you from all your sins. Let's rejoice in that together as we drink the cup with thanksgiving. Lord, we thank you for your great love with which you loved us that you would go to that extent to draw us back to you. We give you praises. We give you worship because you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great rest of the Lord's Day, guys.